You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. I call upon my ancestors to judge me and my clan. The subject of colonialism is a hot topic for pundits, historians, and nationalists. Who can forget what the Romans did for us, or the Victorians? But the legacy of empire is not a cheery tale. But nor is it an inevitable part of history. In fact, there are histories within the British Empire that, up until now, have remained untold. In this episode of Modern Myth, I speak with Dr. Priyamvada Gopal about her new book, Insurgent Empire, which examines the forgotten voices of resistance in the colonial project and how those voices influenced anti-imperial sentiment in the UK. Hello and welcome to Modern Myth with me, the anarchaeologist Tristan. And today's show, I've got a very special guest, Dr. Prima Vada Gopal, uh, who's a reader at the Faculty of English uh, at Cambridge University. Her book, Insurgent Empire, is out now and it talks about colonialism and it talks about the histories and the resistances within colonialism. So I kind of wanted to talk today kind of about what decolonialism is um, as a broader project, but also talk about things like post-colonialism and what are the ways in which resistance um, during the time of British imperialism, uh, how did that kind of feed into a broader narrative uh, within countries that were under British rule? but also in the UK as well. So thank you again for coming on and speaking. Thank you for having me. I've, I think a lot of people might know you from your online presence and um, you're, you've written in several different magazines. You're a writer for several different magazines and columns and papers. Um, is there, how would you describe your kind of online presence? <laughs> um, I suppose I 
tend to comment on uh, current affairs, uh, different kinds of things, but I try and bring the sensibility of a literary critic and a historian to those. So I try to situate uh, things that I see in the present in relation to things that have happened in the past. Um, so I, uh, I've never really thought about my online presence uh, as such, but I guess that is, uh, I try to do in short form what I would uh, do in long form writing otherwise. And you've made certainly uh, the right kind of enemies. Uh, I have a yeah. Daily Mail article that um, ha has dug through your online Twitter and revealed you to be a professor at uh, Cambridge, uh, calling people odious. And it's quite it's quite amusing. Why why do you think why do you think people have this? Why do you think you've encouraged that reaction from like the papers like the Daily Mail? What do you think makes you an easy target? Um, I think, to be honest, what makes me an easy target is a combination of the thing that I talk about uh, that upsets them the most, uh, uh, or rather the things that I talk about, uh, empire and race. Um, and I think the fact that I am a woman and I am not white and I'm from a former colonial uh, possession uh, adds to the outrage. I mean, there are very few occasions on which I have termed anybody odious or problematic. Sometimes um, I do talk about people who are racist or imperialist or white supremacist as, uh, let us say, uh, odious. Um, but I think that the issue isn't the fact that I used a particular pejorative term. I think uh, what really bothers uh, certain outlets, including the Daily Mail, um, is that you have someone who they expect ought to be grateful uh, to Britain, uh, asking maybe difficult questions and saying critical things. Um, and I think that uh, that is what they find to be, uh, as they described me, trolling. Um, so they've reduced everything that I've said and written to trolling. Um, and they've charged me with not being civil. Um, and that is a charge that is frequently made of uh, women, people of color, working class people, uh, who uh, I guess are seen as getting too big for their boots, as, as being uppity um, and as speaking out of turn. And I think that's what really bothers them. Civility is definitely weaponized in today's day and age to kind of silence yeah. people. It's it's quite shocking because there are people who say the most awful racist white supremacist things, but they do say it in a civil fashion and they just want a civil discourse, but they're questioning people's intelligence. They're literally saying that some people are inherently superior to others, but they're doing it in such That's a way right then it's civil discourse and i think this is fundamentally as you pointed out it's to do with the, maintaining this kind of power structure which actually speaks to the wider problems that we encounter when we do uh, talk about empire now mm -hmm. you've kind of you, you one of one of the parts of your wheelhouse is what we would what can be referred to as decolonizing the academia the institution and mm -hmm. decolonizing is something that when i've read 
things by uh, people. It's 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 not something that you can make into a checklist of well, if you do this, 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 and this done right. you're decolonized right um it's right. more about systemic changes would you mind explaining yeah. why decolonization isn't just something that can be just written out on a piece of paper and if we do these then that's it done what's the problem yeah yeah well for one thing as you very rightly just pointed out it's not a checklist i think uh, there is a larger tendency to uh collapse decolonization and diversity um, and it sometimes is assumed that if you just sort of diversify your offerings and you offer women writers or gay writers uh, or black writers, then you've decolonized your curriculum. Diversity is important. We, we live in a heterogeneous world. We live in plural societies uh, and multiple voices should be heard, uh, whether it's in the public sphere or whether it's in uh, the curriculum. But it's not the same thing as decolonization. The short answer to your question is that decolonization is about accepting that empire, uh, the modern empires, uh, European empires, were a very big part of what shaped the globe as we know it today. So there is very, uh, you know, there are very few countries, there is almost no context today in the globe uh, that is unaffected in some form or the other by the big colonial projects of the great European empires, the, the British Empire, which was the largest, the French Empire, and then on a smaller scale, the Dutch, Portuguese, Spanish, Belgian empires, and German uh, empires. So the world as we know it today is shaped by that imperial moment, which unfolded you know, from the 17th century onwards. Um, and decolonization is a accepting that uh, empire and colonialism were shaping forces in the world. Uh, the second is understanding that it had multifarious consequences for the world as we know it. And the third is to say is to assess what consequences were damaging because they were very damaging. It, they involved a great deal of. Uh, expropriation of land, displacement of people, ethnic cleansing, uh, you know, cultural, what some people would refer to as cultural genocide, certainly cultural violation, loss of traditions and customs and languages. So it's basically taking a reckoning of what the imperial project across the world entailed and saying, okay, how are we shaped by this project? How have we become who we are? How does that shape our relationship to the world? How does that shape what we think we know? And how does that account for what we don't know? Um, so it's a very uh, a challenging project of understanding our own formation, our own intellectual, personal, and political formation as, a, as individuals, but also as a society. So the way I see it, decolonization isn't just about getting white people to feel bad. Often it's presented uh, in the media as a kind of guilt project. It has nothing to do with guilt. Uh, decolonization is something everyone has to be involved in. So whether you're uh, in Britain, for instance, where I live and work right now, whether you're white British or whether you're uh, black or Asian British, you all have a relationship to the project of empire and we all have to undertake the project of understanding how we became who we are in part 
in large part as a consequence of the empire. So in the academic context, for instance, decolonization will involve not just diversity, but thinking about how universities uh, got their money, how they were established, how the imperial project shaped certain kinds of disciplines. My own discipline, English literature, was directly a result of the colonial project. It was used to train colonial administrators who were going out to India to uh, to rule in the first instance. So thinking about that, thinking about how uh, certain kinds of knowledge have been presented as Western or European when in fact they're not, so that even the sciences, which are often presented as a, as a kind of uh, European contribution to the world, that is simply not true. Um, and we need to think about kind of different ways in which uh, empire is not just in the past, but persists in the present uh, and continues to shape uh, knowledge and how we engage with knowledge. It's interesting you mentioned as well that um, it's not just about diversity, uh, because that's something that I find the political class in its formation of political correctness almost uses as diversity is our strength. But what you're saying is decolonization is not this arbitrary definition of we just need to make more diversity and then that's okay it's actually fundamentally changing those systems because many of these Absolutely. institutions they are hundreds of years old um and i mean uh, yourself you um you operate at cambridge uh, cambridge and oxford are some of the oldest universities in the world and a lot of their wealth comes from empire so yeah the thing is that when when discussing this, um, a lot of the time, you it is very it's very much fodder for media outlets to kind of hook on to. Um, how do you? Because you're not just talked about in British media or Western media. You're actually when I was doing my research, I actually found your name popping up all over the world, and uh, I actually find some Indian. Uh, newspapers that talk have quite a few articles on you. Um, just generally, what do you think the difference is in the reporting um, around the world? Have you ever noticed something different uh, in how different places report on what you've said? Well, it's interesting that you mention India because when I said a few minutes ago that the consequences of empire are not just for white people to think about, but also... Uh, Africans, Asians, and others uh, to think about. India is a very good example. Um, in India, I've had two kinds of responses. Uh, one um, very hostile, not so much directly from the media as from the online uh, sphere, uh, a great deal of hostility. And this is because in the Indian media and in the British media, I have written about Hindu fundamentalism. I have written about uh, Indian Hindu nationalism and what is essentially a form of incipient Indian fascism. And this has annoyed, uh, if you like, the equivalent of white supremacists in India. And ironically, of course, um, in uh, you know certain strands of Indian nationalism, Hindu nationalism, instance, uh, also draws on a sense of itself as being Aryan, um, also draws on roots that are not all that dissimilar from uh, European Nazism or white supremacism. So uh, often I get exactly the same levels of hostility in India as I get from white supremacists and 
uh, uh, polite racist in Britain uh, or America, for instance. But my point uh, here, what is interesting here is that uh, in, in a sense, in Hindu nationalism in India is another direct legatee and consequence of empire. One of the things that empire did uh, was to introduce ideas of racial purity, uh, religious majoritarianism, and present these as tied up with the project of being a nation. And Indian uh, nationalism, ironically, uh, in its most uh, virulent form, which is the Hindu majoritarian form, is directly uh, a consequence of the divide and rule project of empire in India. It is directly dependent on the same racial, religious, majoritarian ideas that empire put into play in South Asia, in Africa. Um, and it, ironically, it conceives of itself as being uh, indigenous, it conceives of itself as being anti-colonial, but it is in fact very much the child of empire. Uh, in India. So it's not actually particularly surprising to me that I elicit great hostility from Hindu nationalists uh, and white supremacists, because in some sense, they're drawing on the same resources, the same ideologies. These kind of resources uh, one could lump together as almost like empire apologia and kind of cases for maybe why empire wasn't so bad. Um, what what are the main kind of arguments that people are making? Why why do people feel a sense? What kind of things do people say when they talk about? Well, the British Empire wasn't it wasn't imperialism wasn't that bad. What are people mostly saying? Well, there's a kind of well-traveled set of ideas that are peddled. Um, certainly in Britain, uh, there is an obsession with the railways, an almost comic obsession with the railways, um, particularly, of course, in, in India. And so the railways are offered uh, quite uh, routinely as uh, one of the, the great legacies of empire. And if you, you know, if you, if you look at British television, Nearly every week there is a program on the railways in one of the former colonies. Uh, just last night there was a program with Trevor Phillips who uh, is who has gone to India um, and is kind of doing a kind of uh, a, a kind of a Raj nostalgia tour of uh, Indian railways. Um, but the railways, of course, stand in for what is often presented as the great uh, legacy of empire, which is modernity, technology industry and development. Um, and alongside these, we are told that the English language was a gift to uh, the former colonies and the rule of law uh, was a gift to the former colonies. And of course, most importantly, in a very, very curious uh, convolution, uh, we are told that the very freedom of colonies, the very fact that they became independent nations, was itself a British gift, and that uh, the whole point of colonialism was ultimately to free um, and to bestow nationhood on, on, on colonies. So even the resistance to empire is uh, presented as a great gift of empire. No, I find that very funny that it's almost like it's, almost like it's um, co-opted its own resistance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's very deliberate and, and there's a very long tradition uh, in Britain, but also in other countries of the elites uh, picking up energies uh, from popular resistance and popular revolt 
uh, and then presenting it as an initiative from above. So that it's not unusual and it's not restricted to colonialism, but it's very noticeable in relation to the empire in particular. Which is why when I uh, when there was a rather rather controversial, if I put it in a mildest terms possible, um, there was a mild, uh, mildly controversial piece written uh, called "The Case for Colonialism." I'm sure you're familiar with it. Yeah. Uh, where at one of the discussion points or near the conclusion was the kind of idea of recolonization of countries, yeah. and I find it. I, I just I do not know why anybody could have that aspiration. What is going on? What is in the mind of somebody saying that? Look, in part, this is controversialist. Uh, I think that there is an uh, a sense of uh, being able to get attention and and media attention and a shock value in making what are clearly uh, you know off the wall claims and clearly not. Uh, in any sense feasible. However, the underlying ideology there is to say that the status quo in the globe is actually desirable, where we have uh, essentially countries that do much of the sweated labor, and then you have countries which are uh, benefiting from the profit of that labor. So in a sense, to say we want to recolonize the world uh, actually overrides the fact that much of the world is still in a colonial status quo. That despite of formal independence, there is still a relationship where Western Europe and Northern America rule the roost, uh, both culturally uh, and economically, although that is, that is, of course, slowly starting to change. Uh, and that we still have a situation where there is a, a, a global division of labor, where there are very large numbers of uh, very poor people, labor, very poorly paid labor, uh, provides the well-being uh, of the populations of other countries. So, in a way, this case for colonialism uh, is really doing two things. One, it's sort of saying that the status quo uh, is good and that we need more of it. Um, and it's also saying that, in a sense, the racial hierarchy, which still structures the world, uh, is desirable and we need more of it. So it's a kind of curious combination of shock value and actually endorsing the status quo and, uh, and in a way pretending that we don't already have a situation uh, where empire, where the empires of the 19th and 20th centuries haven't quite gone away uh, and, the, and the world order that they put in place have never quite gone away either. It's quite interesting you say that because um, in one of my previous episodes when I talked about repatriation, I argued very heavily that um, despite um, things like independence, despite kind of the freedom that certain countries have been given, uh, a lot of the material conquest has never been uh, redressed. And for me personally, a part of that has to be, you know, return of material culture. But like you said, there's, there's actually still this big divide between the global north and the global south and it's very very disconcerting that people really want to keep it that way now we've we've mentioned uh, your book at the start there um you this is not your first book you've uh, you've written a couple before um so could you tell us a little bit about why why were you wanting to write insurgent empire 
Um, that is Luna there screaming Hello, at the background Luna. to go out. Uh, <laughs> she has strong views on Empire. Um, so I wrote it partly to challenge this narrative of bestowing gifts on the, the on the colonized. Um, so. Uh, yes, the railways, English language, etc. These were all, of course, incidental, as, as Walter Rodney, the famous Dianan uh, campaigner, once said, the British didn't build railways so that Africans could go visit their friends. Uh, we know the railways were about uh, ease of administration and also for carrying uh, goods out uh, of the country and, and transporting colonial uh, uh, the, the colonial apparatus. But I specifically in the book wanted to challenge the idea that freedom was um, a fundamentally British idea or a British value, as people might say today, and that it was then disseminated into colonial contexts uh, by the benevolent imperial presence. Um, what I show in the book is that, A, there was fierce resistance to empire at all times in many contexts. And secondly, that that resistance uh, impacted Britain. So, in fact, the direction of, of giving was quite frequently in the other direction, so that it was the resistance of the colonies that impacted British dissenters on the question of empire. So to break this down again, I'm, I'm, I'm saying two or three things, related things. One, that there was always uh, resistance. Uh, secondly, this resistance was, was, is a very important part of the story of how colonies became free. But I'm also saying that in Britain, there was a dissenting tradition of criticizing empire and that this dissenting tradition, which you know, young people in Britain should have access to, so that they're not just given one story. That dissident tradition was inspired by resistance to and revolt against the British Empire. I think it's funny that um, it's almost like, uh, in addition to all the material things that were exported or extracted from uh, Empire, it seems that the concept of dissension and freedom was also kind of imported. Like, you know, a little bit of... Um, yeah, it seems it's quite interesting that that cultural mix also was happening. Um, yeah, you talk a lot about I, I've in when when you've been talking about this, but you've been talking about kind of some of the missing voices um, that are in uh, when talking about colonial history. What do you see as the missing voices specifically? Yeah, there are several missing voices. Um, so I'm, I'm going to talk mainly about the British context, but this would not be untrue in, in other contexts as well. Um, in Britain, there is almost no uh, public critical discourse on empire. I mean, there's a lot of whining about how post-colonial guilt is everywhere, how no one is allowed to say anything. But in fact, there are very few voices that are publicly and prominently one of the arguments that is often made when people do criticize the empire or, or want to do what you were referring to earlier in terms of kind of reparative gestures, uh, it is often said that that's anachronistic, that back in the day, everybody was pro-slavery or pro-empire. That's simply not true. So one of the things that uh, I try to point out in the book is that uh, just as we today don't agree on everything, 
uh, not everybody in the in 19th or the 18th centuries agreed on everything. So there were dissident uh, strands in Britain, just as there, as there are just dissident strands in Britain today. So I think that it's quite important to recall those voices that not everybody back in the day was all about uh, cheering the empire on. There is quite a distinct an important tradition of criticizing empire or certainly of criticizing aspects of empire or things that were done uh, in the name of Britain in other parts of the globe. Um, and I wanted to recover those voices. But I also wanted to recover the voices of those who influenced British dissidents. So that is the other uh, line in the book. So. There were people, many of whom are unknown or minor uh, players, uh, who nonetheless, whose voices come back uh, in, to Britain in the form of uh, counterinsurgency reports or in the form of newspaper reports or in pamphlets. Um, and then there are major figures like uh, C.L.R. James, Shapuji Saklatwala, George Padmore, uh, uh, who come to Britain and become what I call interpreters of insurgency. They, they let the wider British public know about the ways in which the empire is being resisted. Um, and so these are voices uh, that I also bring to the table. And I, what I'm trying to do there is to show the interaction between these voices and the voices of British dissidents. Um, but it's very important to say that because I, I looked at certain kinds of written texts and I looked at certain kinds of documents, even in my book, there are missing voices. So, uh, uh, you know, we don't really hear from bit players. Uh, we don't really hear from, uh, you know, black women who very often were involved in insurgent movements, but they were not the people who were fronting the big campaigns. And so um, even in, in terms of the work that I've done, there are gaps. And I very much hope that people will, uh, you know, uh, join the wider project of recovering these voices and the interactions between these voices uh, and dissident traditions in Britain and uh, in, in other countries. But these are the two sets of voices uh, and their interactions that I've tried to uh, recover in the book. Going to a specific example that I think you've talked about before with um, Jamaica in the late 18th mm -hmm. century, um, I find it really interesting when you're talking about uh, some of the ideas of freedom are actually out with what many people consider freedom to be just as like we talked about before where um, even though places gained independence they were still almost in a kind of colonial position um, your example that you've talked about Jamaica late 18th century could you expand a little bit about what you mean about different types of freedom yeah so uh, this is Jamaica 1865 so mid to late uh, 19th century um, but this is a very good example, and historians uh, of Jamaica have, have written about it, so I, it's not a new discovery as such, but it's a very important moment in talking about the relationship between uh, rebellion in the colonies and British descent. So um, what happens in the post-emancipation period is, is that when slaves are so-called given their freedom, they're then expected to continue to work on the plantations uh, as waged laborers. 
So the, the expectation is not that they are, uh, quote unquote, freed and then left to their own devices to uh, to make their own life. I mean, scandalously, we know that although slave owners were compensated, slaves themselves uh, were never given any form of compensation or reparations. So there they were, freed, uh, but with no means of making a living because the expectation was quite simply that they would continue to work uh, for their former masters, except that they would now be given minimal wages. What is very interesting uh, when you look at the documents of the 1865 rebellion, which is, the, which is a rebellion of freed slaves and their descendants, is that very clearly they do not wish to be waged laborers. Their understanding of freedom is not the freedom to sell your labor power uh, uh, to a, a capitalist and then become an employee and, and live like that for the rest of your life. Their understanding of freedom is that they would have their small plots of land, which they would work and where they would become self-sustaining uh, and, and independent. And the whole uprising in some sense is about this clash. So when you look at uh, British counterinsurgency uh, uh, documents, you've got people in Britain saying these people must be made to work. Uh, they're lazy, they're shiftless, they're rebellious, and they must be they must be brought into the mercantile and capitalist economy. Uh, they must the, the rebellion has to be put down and a lesson taught. Whereas the rebels themselves are saying, sorry, we don't want to be wage laborers in part because for them there isn't a sufficient distinction between their conditions when they were slaves and the conditions that they can expect when they become waged laborers. And in fact, we know that slavery was replaced by indenture, uh, where you know Chinese and um, Indian laborers were brought to the former slave colonies to work on the plantations in pretty abysmal conditions, though they were technically free. Um, so I think what is interesting there for me is that there is a clash of ideas of freedom and it's very explicit even in the British debates on what should be done uh, with the insurgents of Jamaica and what should be done in the aftermath of the Morant Bay Rebellion of 1865. But there is a recognition in Britain that this is precisely about a clash of freedoms. One is the capitalist understanding that people are free to become wage laborers and they're free to consume with whatever money they do have. Um, and the other is the understanding that working for planters or industrialists is not really uh, a meaningful form of freedom. And it's very interesting to see British working class meetings, British working class newspapers repeat this, that uh, the people in Jamaica who have rebelled, they are our brothers. Um, and they are our brothers, even though they are black, uh, because we share a cause. We share resistance to the same parties who are trying to get us uh, get us to labor for their medics on exploitative terms. It's like international solidarity. It is. I mean, it is absolutely. I talk about it as an early form of solidarity. The word that is used um, in the in this point uh, in the 19th century is sympathy, but they use sympathy differently uh, from the way in which we might use it today. It's not about pity or feeling bad for somebody, but it's about identifying a cause and feeling the same feelings as someone very far away from you. That's that's really such a fascinating part of history because it's it's lovely to be able to kind of get 
into that depth and detail with these kind of situations where in a normal sense uh, a lot of people like to kind of boil things down to a very kind of reduced state they want just the the basic facts they want something they can figure yeah. out on a sheet of paper um yeah. i mean we, we what a lot of people sometimes talk about is the kind of the death tallies of certain parts of empire and i think mm. uh, we need to i think I personally think that's not the best way to talk about uh, empire and control because empire is not just Britain. Uh, there are there have been so many different uh, forms of imperialism throughout history. It's mm-hmm. not just Britain, mm-hmm. and um, I think that it's almost like there. It's almost like the end justifies the means when we get down to the numbers thing. Yeah, uh, the balance sheet. Yeah. So, what do you think uh, when people talk about the balance sheet? Why do you think it's so appealing? And what can we do to kind of start undermining the use of that balance sheet to kind of say, well, I know it did some wrong, but it did some right as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the balance sheet uh, is a a model that doesn't really make sense uh, in terms of how historical events took place. It's not as though people were saying, oh, fine, uh, famine, three million die, but look, railways. You see, it it gives a false impression of a planned economic project, which it was not. I mean, empire was very much the search uh, for uh, resources, for labor and for markets. Um, One thing I I would say that although there have been empires throughout history, uh, we shouldn't confuse different kinds of empires. One of the reasons that, uh, you know, uh, the modern empires, the modern European empires and and, and present day, uh, you know, empires that are emerging are important is that they're very tied up to capitalism. So uh, the the empires of the 18th and 19th centuries have a certain presence in our lives today in ways that for instance the mughal empire or the roman empire don't or the ottoman empire you know don't really to that extent um with the great european empires including the british empire we are talking about empires that have an afterlife uh that the system that they put into place which is capitalism is very much the system under which we all live today so I would make one a distinction between what we call empires very loosely and what we're looking at today in, in terms of colonialism, which is the present capitalism and the ways in which slavery, indenture and, and colonialism were tied up to capitalism. But this is exactly why a balance sheet doesn't make sense. A balance sheet is, of course, a very capitalist thing to do, right? So you, yeah. uh, at the end of the year, you, you take accounts and then you say, okay, you know, this was losses, this was profits. The overall balance is this much. Now, first of all, it's it's not how empire was conducted. There was no kind of uh, hundred-year plan. Um, but the other thing is that these are kind of uh, this is an uh, kind of in in a way an, an immoral exercise. I mean, how can you weigh up famines or genocide or land grabs or extermination against the railways and the English language? We're not comparing like like, um, and we're not saying. Uh, you know, oh, well, people were prepared to pay this price in order to get the railways. And anyway, things like the railways in the English language or the parliamentary system, these are side effects. You know, nobody set out to colonize in order to uh, give people the English language or the railways. These were 
things that happened as a consequence of the search for profits, the search for markets, the search for cheap labor. And the thing is that the search for markets, for cheap labor, for profits is still very much with us today. So, you know, we haven't really broken from the imperial dynamic. What has happened is that we have countries like India, Brazil, China now picking up that imperial gauntlet um, and in a way running with it. But the main logic of empire has never gone away. And I don't think that, that we can do balance sheets any more than we can say, well, you know, there was a fire in a clothing factory, but look, uh, you know, British fashion did really well this year. You're simply not comparing like with like, and it doesn't make sense uh, to, to compare them in this way. Yeah, definitely. I completely agree with that. Um, I think it's, I mean, like, I don't like balance sheets and tallies and everything, but Wikipedia does have a page on list of the famines in India under British colonial rule, and it's definitely more than one, um, which yeah. it's, a, it's a horrendous list. And I'm just like, you know, somebody, you know, somebody who glosses over that uh, for the sake of a railway, it's very glib, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But I don't... Well, one thing I wanted to say in yeah. relation to, I mean, your comment about death tallies, you're quite right that, you know, we can't have death tallies as part of a balance sheet. At the same time, as you just pointed out, there has been no reckoning in Britain with the damage that empire did. So we bang on all the time about the railways and the English language, uh, but there is actually a very, very little discussion about the massacres, the land grabs, the dispossession, the famines closer to home in Ireland. Uh, there has been an apology, but nothing more. Uh, there has been no uh, kind of understanding of the consequences for countries and the relationship between Britain and Ireland today of that relationship. And you can see it's it's coming back to to haunt us um, in the form of Brexit. So I think that the lack of historical understanding, whether that takes the form of looking at death tallies or whether that takes a more sustained, uh, you know, engagement, that lack of engagement is a real problem, and it really afflicts. The way in which everything from foreign policy uh, to self-understanding is enacted today, and it's it's just going to get. I mean, as uh, like I am, uh, I grew up in Northern Ireland, so I I have mm. discovered that people uh, in England mostly have just discovered that Northern Ireland is a place. You know, yeah. uh, they they they, right. they had That's no right. concept of it before. That's right, and. Uh, coming to terms with that concept has actually spawned a lot of anger and viciousness and violence um, yes. in the social and yes. political realms. And I I know that the future is going to be quite a difficult one when it comes to making that reckoning, but it's something that does need to happen. However, I'd like to focus now on what we can do in the future and what what are the good ways that we can go forward how can we support people like yourself writing about uh post-colonialism writing about decolonialism how how best are we to kind of like help that along what can we do i wouldn't think about it in terms of help so much as saying i think that a lot of us have to join cause um you know, one uh, historian wrote to me and she said, this is the eminent historian Yasmin Khan at Oxford, and she said to me, your book is curiously hopeful. And I hadn't thought about it that way, but I think she's right. I mean, I think that I end the book with a call for all of us 
to do the work that it takes to think about our relationship to empire, to think about our relationship to each other, to understand whether one is thinking about, well, how did Northern Ireland come to be a separate uh, entity from the Republic of Ireland, which, as you say, many people in Britain have no idea how that happened. Um, you know, whether we're thinking about India versus Pakistan, whether we're thinking about Nigerian uh, 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 politics, if we all start to think about how we became the way we are and how we relate to other people, and we understand that decolonization is a shared project, then I think that there is some hope for saying we are all going to make our reckoning with history. And that reckoning with history is something that can influence how we think and act and vote today. So I, I would say that the, the best support is a, a, a sense of a community of people who are going to do the work of decolonization and engaging with the legacies of empire. And as I said, I'm very, very clear that this is work that has to be done by people across communities and across racial boundaries. Once we understand that there's a shared project of critical historical understanding, then I think we automatically have a community of support for work like I and others are doing, but also a community of support for activists on the ground, for journalists, for, uh, you know, teachers, for uh, progressive politicians. I think I think ultimately the work has got to be about community building and exactly what the people in the 19th century that I just mentioned were trying to do, which is create fellow feeling and solidarity. And I think that that would be a very, very good start. That's a fantastic uh, place, I think, to end this. And I really, really think it's fantastic that we're we're talking here about expanding history, uh, about reaching into those depths and find and bringing out the information that is there and just making it available to people and letting people then yeah. use that to kind of build connection and sympathy and well solidarity with people around the world. I think that's that's such yeah. an important message. Um, so thank you again for coming and sitting thank you talking um, if people want to find your book uh, Insurgent Empire uh, where do you think where can they go to find that well um, it is available on the Verso website uh, V-E-R-S-O and I believe it's on 40% discount at this exact moment um, but I would also encourage people to support their local booksellers, to support independent bookshops, to support independent platforms um, and and show their solidarity uh, with the book trade uh, and and booksellers in that way. So uh, it is available in, in multiple uh, bookshops now and uh, certainly from the Verso website. And people interested in uh, maybe actually following you online on Twitter, how can they find you? Um, I am at Priyamvada Gopal. Uh, I guess, yeah. Is that yeah, how it how it works? That's at Priyamvada at, Gopal. Yes. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they can find me and my trolls there. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, that's such a great message to end on. Thank you so much again. Thank you, Tristan. Pleasure. Conception to hell deep.
been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.